Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. Before we dive into ECMO Part 3, I wanted to give you guys a quick heads up about a new member of Behind the Knife. His name is Michael Vu. Uh, He is a research resident at Madigan Army Medical Center. He's already making big contributions to Behind the Knife. He totally redid our website, so please go check that out, behindthenife.org. It's much more useful and easy to navigate than before. He also is working on a bedside procedure series, and the first procedure in that is a chest tube placement. I assure you, please go watch this, even if you've placed a lot of chest tubes. It is the best video I've ever seen on chest tubes. Uh, It is detailed from how to find the right equipment, how to set up sterily, um, lots of great animations with anatomy and everything involved. So it's about a 10-minute procedure video. So share this with your interns and everyone out there. It's going to be in our show notes. You can find it on our Twitter page, or you can go to YouTube um, and just search behind the knife chest tube, and that'll pop right up. So, okay, enjoy this uh, ECMO series. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. My name is Patrick Georgioff, Trauma Surgery Fellow at the Red Duke Trauma Institute in Houston, Texas. And today I'm joined again by my good friend, Dr. Nicholas Tiemann, cardiac surgeon and the director of the Adult ECMO program at the University of Virginia. And today we're going to finish our discussion about venovenous ECMO. On our last episode, we covered oxygenation, CO2 exchange, and pumps and pressures. And today we're going to discuss ventilator management while on ECMO anticoagulation, hemolysis, decannulation, and other complications. So if you haven't listened to part one or two, I would highly encourage you to do that before turning into this episode. And as I mentioned uh, before those last two episodes, this discussion is for anyone uh, and everyone who's interested in ECMO, but it's going to be most useful for those who have had some degree of exposure to it in the past. All right, so it's great to be back. So on the first episode, we uh, cannulated a COVID patient with respiratory failure despite optimal ventilator management, proning, and chemical paralysis. And then in the last episode, we talked about oxygenation, carbon dioxide clearance, and how to manage flows and pressures. But we didn't talk about what to do with the ventilator. These patients are typically on very high ventilator settings. So how do you think about this, Patrick? Right. So let's say, let's give some numbers for our COVID patient here. So let's say our COVID patient has the following settings. They're on a cyst control, pressure control, uh, a ventilator setting. The respiratory rate is 20. Their inspiratory pressure is 20. PEEP is 14. Their IDE is 1 to 1. FiO2 is 100% and they have nitric oxide running at 20 parts per million. Patient has very poor compliance. Their tidal volumes are only 280 cc's generated with those high pressures. And those terrible settings aren't that unusual for patients with severe ARDS. And that's why we start thinking about VV ECMO and we start reaching for VV ECMO. So the the purpose of ECMO, particularly VV ECMO in this case, allows us to support the patient to do the work of the lungs and rest the lungs, uh, avoiding any ventilator-induced lung injury while the patient heals. Right. But the degree of rest, lung rest specifically, is controversial. And there's no clear evidence showing that ultra-low ventilator settings are more favorable than a little bit higher settings. So in general, lung protective strategies include a plateau pressure of less than 25 to 30 centimeters of water, tidal volumes of less than 6 cc per kg of ideal body weight, and an FiO2 of less than 40%. 
Again, I want to remind everyone that a plateau pressure is measured by performing an inspiratory hold on the ventilator. And although there's no exact definition, the quote-unquote ultra-protective strategies is often synonymous with what is described in the ELSO guidelines, specifically an inspiratory pressure of 10, a PEEP of 10, a respiratory rate of 5, and FiO2 of less than 40%, so very minimal ventilator settings. That's right. And another example of this is what was used in the EOLIA trial, which we talked about in the first episode, where they defined rest settings as a plateau pressure less than 24, a PEEP of at least 10, and FiO2 of 30 to 50%. All right, Nick, you mentioned a PEEP of, quote, at least 10. Let's talk about that for a second. What is the role of PEEP when it comes to lung injury? That's a big question for you. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. It's hard to answer, but it kind of all depends on how recruitable the lungs are. So if you have poor lung compliance and you increase the PEEP, you know, as you increase that mean airway pressure, it might increase the strain on the lungs. It might increase the risk of ventilator-induced lung injury from uh, barotrauma. However, if the compliance is better and the lungs are a little bit more recruitable, then the higher PEEP could actually help, could decrease the strain on the lungs. Right. And on the flip side of that, um, PEEP that is too low could result in complete lung collapse. And this may result in pulmonary vasoconstriction, pulmonary hypertension, and even potentially in the worst case scenario, right heart failure as well. Right. So there was a, uh, there was a retrospective observational study by Schmidt et al., uh, published in 2015 in critical care medicine. And they performed a uh, multivariate analysis of 168 ARDS patients on ECMO. And they showed that having, that the patients that had a higher PEEP during the first three days of ECMO, uh, had lower mortality. Yeah, interesting. So with that being said, though, the, Degree of lung rest is very much practitioner and institution specific. So, Nick, let's say our COVID patient is running at 3,500 RPMs. They have a blood flow rate of 4.5 liters per minute and sweep is set at 4 liters per minute. The pressures on the ECMO circuit are all within normal ranges that we discussed in the last episode. She is sedated but not paralyzed, and she is actually synchronous with the vent. Also very, very important to maintain synchrony. Her SATs are 88%. PaO2 is 60 and PaCO2 is 45. So we're doing pretty good, actually. So how would you go about putting her on, on rest settings? So I, I think the most important thing here is to prevent atelectasis. Like you, you mentioned, with, with lung collapse, that causes a lot of problems. So, so you know, th this is all very institution-dependent, provider-dependent. People have different, you know, strong opinions about this. Personally, I tend to keep these patients on a little bit higher PEEP than others might, you know, higher than that 10 that, uh, that the ELSO, uh, recommendations are. So, um, you know, I like to keep a higher PEEP, but still minimizing the peak and plateau airway pressures. And so I usually choose to use either a APRV type mode or even just a pressure support ventilation with a high PEEP, something that preserves that mean airway pressure that's needed to prevent the lung collapse. Um, of note, there was actually a, a very recent randomized controlled trial uh, by Wang et al. in critical care medicine, and that showed that if you use transpulmonary pressures to guide ventilator management uh, in ECMO patients, um, what that's going to usually result in is increasing your PEEP, lowering your driving pressure, and they found that that significantly improved the likelihood of weaning those patients from ECMO compared with standard, you know, quote-unquote, lung, lung rest settings for ECMO. Right. And you, you refer to things like driving pressure. I, I want to point out to our listeners, too, uh, Behind the Knife has an amazing collection of videos on uh, YouTube as well. So the BTK YouTube channel. And on there, uh, there are a handful of videos as well, um, some that I put together uh, for uh, they talk about ventilator strategies and management, things like driving pressure 
some more classic discussions about ARDS, protective strategies, et cetera. So if you want to dive in a little bit more to that, uh, there's that uh, there. There's also an introduction to vents. Uh, a video as well, which uh, hopefully for the newbies uh, coming on to vets, it might be very helpful for you. So, all right. So, uh, so important because yeah. you really can't understand ECMO unless you understand the ventilator uh, strategies behind there. So absolutely. And those videos that you put together are really fantastic and everybody should check those out. Great. All right, let's go on to anticoagulation. So, so ECMO is thought to uh, induce a hypercoagulable state. This is due to exposure uh, and activation of the clotting cascade by foreign surfaces like the whole circuit itself and the pump. And so there's some other con contributors to a hypercoagulable state, things like uh, obstruction of blood flow uh, because of the large cannulas that we're using, the fact that the patients, for the most part, are laid up in bed and, and not able to, to be mobilized, not able to ambulate. And then also you have inflammation from trauma, sepsis, surgery, many other causes. And then also, like I mentioned in the last episode, uh, we're seeing a lot of uh, hypercoagulability in our COVID patients. So in our patient in particular for this case scenario, she's going to be at a higher risk of, of clotting because of her COVID status. That's exactly right. And, and hypercoagulability can lead to DVT, to PE, uh, uh, to uh, circuit th component thrombosis and progressively worsening uh, oxygenator function. So uh, it's important to recognize, though, that VV ECMO is not hooked up to the arterial system, right? We talked about it at the very, very beginning. A VV ECMO is exactly that, venovenous, no hookup to the arterial system. So unless the patient has a PFO present, there is little to no risk of stroke um, uh, like there is uh, in VA ECMO in which you're returning that oxygenated blood directly into the arterial system. So, uh, so part of your regular circuit maintenance should include a careful examination of all the components of the circuit ideally with a flashlight to help you identify any clots or, or fiber information in the, in the system. Uh, if you find a large enough clot, uh, it should be removed. And you can do that either by splicing out that part of the tubing or changing out the oxygenator pump or the whole circuit. Now, one important point is that many of the newer circuits that people are using are actually bonded with heparin, uh, and that can actually uh, decrease the clotting risk. Sure, sure. And the most common anticoagulant used uh, uh, for folks on ECMO is unfractionated heparin. Remember that heparin binds antithrombin-3 and it potentiates it more than 1,000-fold. Now, monitoring the uh, degree of anticoagulation and the effect of the heparin uh, is pretty complicated. So you can use an ACT or an activated clotting time. Uh, you can check a PTT or you can check anti-10A levels. However, there's really not any good evidence that tells us which assay is best. And oftentimes, if you check all of these assays, you'll get widely disparate results even at the same time on the same patient. So it's, it's pretty complicated. Um, in terms of what our typical therapeutic ranges that we like to use are, uh, kind of general recommendations include a ACT of 180 to 220 seconds, a PTT of somewhere between 50 and 70 seconds, or a anti-10A level of 0.4 to 0.8 units per milliliter. Now, not surprisingly, ECMO, especially when run with therapeutic anticoagulation, is associated with a high risk of bleeding. In fact, major bleeding has been reported in up to 30% of ECMO patients. Now, bleeding can occur anywhere. It can occur at uh, uh, cannulation sites, areas of trauma, or uh, recent surgical sites. It can also be spontaneous. Yep. And, and unfortunately, these spontaneous bleeds can, can sometimes be very devastating. You know, they're, they're most often intracranial bleeds. Uh, sometimes you get large retroperitoneal bleeds or or pulmonary bleeds uh, or or GI bleeds. So really, kind of anywhere throughout the body. 
Um, important to know that, like you said, the, the risk of a stroke is nearly non-existent uh, from VV ECMO. So, so if it's contraindicated or if the patient's bleeding, you can certainly run VV ECMO for a prolonged period of time without any anticoagulation. And you and I both know from our experience at the University of Michigan where, where if somebody looks at you funny, we stop the, the heparin altogether and run them for, for days and days, weeks, or months at a time without any anticoagulation, and they do just fine. So, so VV ECMO anticoagulation is is not necessarily required. And so for that reason, going back to the indications for ECMO, you know, the inability to be anticoagulated for VV ECMO, I don't consider a absolute contraindication because I, I have no problem running VV ECMO without without anticoagulation. Um, sure. Now, the, the the risk of a thrombotic complica- complication is is kind of thought to be higher in, the, in that scenario. But really, that that's not well supported by data. We don't really know the, the true risk of that. Sure. Uh, and what are some of the other issues, Nick, that might arise with the use of heparin? Uh, so one thing is uh, you can get thrombocytopenia. So so heparin can cause heparin-induced thrombocytopenia or HIT. Uh, and that's fairly rare. There are other kind of more common causes of thrombocytopenia uh, in patients that are on ECMO, including uh, sepsis. Uh, you get uh, um, uh, you can have circuit-related activation of platelets, consumption of platelets, uh, and some medications can cause thrombocytopenia as well. Right. In general, right, anyone in the ICU, any of their patients in the ICU, uh, when their platelets start dropping, the, the uh, likelihood is it's not actually HIT, uh, but more often these myriad of other things. So the, our degree of suspicion for HIT can be quantified using the 4T score and uh, can be tested with a HIT ELISA-type test. And if confirmation is needed, uh, a serotonin release assay or SRA. What about heparin resistance? Yeah, so so heparin resistance uh, should be high in your differential when uh, when you're giving you know relatively high doses of heparin and not getting the expected effect in terms of your uh, markers of anticoagulation. So uh, as you mentioned, the uh, mechanism of heparin is activating uh, antithrombin three, and so if patients have low levels of antithrombin three, then the heparin is not going to be effective. And so you can do a couple things to correct that. One is you can uh, give uh, fresh frozen plasma. Uh, you can also give uh, anti-thrombin-3 concentrate. But, you know, the timing and dosing of that can get pretty complicated, and it's also quite expensive. And so sometimes we would recommend just going to an alternative agent uh, if you think the patient has heparin resistance or any sort of uh, heparin-related thrombocytopenia. In fact, several centers don't even use heparin as their first line. They use other agents. So, so Patrick, talk to me about what are some of the other agents that we can use. Right, that's definitely a trend uh, using non non uh, heparin agents, and there are some there's some literature out there that suggests that they actually may be more effective. So these specific agents would be the direct thrombin inhibitors, things like uh, bivalrudin and argatriban. So bivalrudin has a 25 minute half life, argatriban a 45 minute half life, but neither have uh, specific reversal options, uh, and uh, both are actually monitored using PTT as well. If you need to, you can give PCC to reverse them. Nick, let's say our COVID patient develops a, a massive GI bleed while on ECMO and on uh, unfractionated heparin anticoagulation. Uh, she is hemodynamically unstable. What can we do? Yeah, so, you know, obviously, uh, you know, all the usual things first, so making sure you have appropriate IV access, making sure the airway is protected, calling for blood, getting a, a scope ready, and, and the, the person who's going to perform that scope, uh, you know, on the way. But the, the first thing, you know, really is just turn off the heparin, and, and then you can reverse with protamine and run the patient without heparin, and, and that should be just fine. Right, and the typical dose of protamine is one milligram per 100 units of heparin administered. Uh, and you want to, however, though, adjust for the heparin's half-life of 60 to 90 minutes. So oftentimes in the setting of ECMO, unlike in cardiac surgery where you give a big bolus, we're giving heparin as an infusion. 
And in this case, uh, we would calculate the protamine dose based on total heparin administered over the last two hours. Yeah, that's right. So let's let's change gears a little bit and let's talk about a, a common issue, a common problem with ECMO, and that's hemolysis. Right. So uh, major contributors to hemolysis include sublethal damage to erythrocytes by shear stress and, and pressure changes that occur um, as the blood moves through the circuit. And as a result of RBC destruction, the levels of free plasma hemoglobin and lactate dehydrogenase can rise significantly during ECMO runs. And uh, plasma hemoglobin itself is cytotoxic. Uh, it also scavenges nitric oxide and can lead to inappropriate vasoconstriction, endothelial dysfunction, and even platelet aggregation. And as a consequence, severe complications such as renal failure or multiple organ failure you know, may emerge. So for that reason, uh, we check plasma-free hemoglobin levels and lactate dehydrogenase levels on a daily basis. And uh, most ECMO folks that I know feel that the clinically relevant levels of hemolysis can be diagnosed when your plasma-free hemoglobin is uh, greater than about 50 milligrams per deciliter uh, or your LDH is greater than about 2,000 units per liter. Uh, in kind of the, today's day and age with uh, these kind of new lower resistant oxygenators and and the better uh, centrifugal pump technology, this is pretty rare. Sure. So in a review of 318 patients on VV ECMO in Germany by Lael et al., uh, published in PLUS One in 2015, only 1.7% out of 4,142 individual plasma hemoglobin measurements uh, had resulted in a, a plasma hemoglobin greater than 50 milligrams per deciliter. So sudden increases in plasma hemoglobin or free hemoglobin greater than 100 milligrams per deciliter was indicative, uh, indicative of pump thrombosis, but strangely enough, not oxygenator thrombosis. There was also no difference in plasma hemoglobin among uh, different pump or cannula types, or even when, when patients were running with a more negative pressure on their venous return. Plasma hemoglobin was uh, higher uh, at greater blood flows. Uh, it was higher in trauma patients and in those receiving more blood transfusion and in patients requiring dialysis. And uh, lastly, mortality was associated with higher uh, peak levels of plasma hemoglobin. All right, Patrick. So let's say that our patient's plasma-free hemoglobin is climbing. Over the last three days, it has gone from 14 to 28 to 45, and her LDH has also risen. Her urine, uh, you look at that and it's tinged pink. What, what, how do you approach this? What can we do to address this? Right. So there are a few things we can do. First, uh, we should ensure that the patient is appropriately anticoagulated. A second, we can consider decreasing pressure by decreasing flow and or increasing cannula size or adding an additional return cannula. And third, we should examine the pump carefully and the oxygenator for clots. Again, you mentioned using a flashlight, looking very closely at it and just physically examining it. And the presence of clot uh, is also suggested by uh, rising D-dimer levels. Yeah, that's all, that's all great stuff. So uh, like we talked about in a previous episode, whenever you have an issue with the pump, you always want to check it, look at the pressures, you know, look at the arterial venous pressures. And so let's say that this patient is appropriately anticoagulated, but that her delta P, which we talked about is the intrinsic pressure minus the arterial pressure, uh, has climbed from 30 to 40 to 60 over the past three days. Uh, you do check a D-dimer and it's greater than 20. And you look at the oxygenator with your flashlight and you notice that there's a large clot there. Sure. So in this case, I would coordinate an exchange of the oxygenator with the help of a perfusionist. Perfect. All right. So again, let's change gears. So let's talk about the use of prophylactic antibiotics, specifically prophylaxis against cannula-related skin and bloodstream infections. Now, ELSO, the Extracorporeal Life Support Organization, does not recommend prophylactic antibiotics. 
However, they do endorse the use of peri-procedural antibiotics. Uh, and specifically, they're talking about uh, prior to cannulation and then for up to 24 hours after you've cannulated. Sure. Nick, do you put your patients on prophylactic antibiotics? I, I don't just for cannulation. You know, obviously, many of these patients have, have many other reasons to need antibiotics, such as uh, bacterial superinfection of their lungs, urinary tract infections, and other things like that. Right. And for example, prophylactic antibiotics are not used at the University of Michigan, uh, but are used at the University of Texas here in Houston. Now, up to 20% of ECMO patients do develop bloodstream infections. Uh, and obviously, the longer they're on ECMO, the longer they have this giant piece of plastic in their central venous system, the, the higher risk they are. So, um, you know, one thing, though, is that it is unclear uh, if these infections are uh, related to the cannula, related to the circuit, or if it's just because they're otherwise critically ill and, and prone to, uh, to different infections. Sure, sure. So let's, Nick, let's wrap it up. Uh, let's talk about decannulation. So what are signs that the patient is improving and we can start thinking about uh, getting rid of ECMO? So, you know, the, the, the biggest signs of recovery are when you're, you know, stable ECMO settings, stable ventilator settings, and you've got improved oxygenation, right? So clearly so something's happening that your oxygen uh, is, uh, your oxygen delivery is improving. And you uh, also, you will see decreased carbon dioxide levels. And then when you look at the x-ray, you'll see that the lung is getting clearer. So, you know, the x-ray always lags clinically by a couple of days, but you'll start to see clearing of the opacification in your lungs. I think it's super important every single day when you're rounding these patients, look at the ventilator, look, measure their compliance in the ventilator, look at their airway pressures and what kind of tidal volume uh, you're able to accomplish with those same airway pressures. And you'll see signs that the patient's lungs are, are able to be recruited more and that they're more compliant. Sure. And, and how do you decide if the patient should be decannulated? So it's uh, it's kind of a several step process. So the first is uh, you know you're 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 working for lung rest, right? So you let the patient's lungs rest, and then you're just watching for signs of recovery. And once we see those signs that I just talked about, you can start by by testing out the patient's lungs. You know, putting them uh, having their lungs do more of the work, ha- contributing more to the gas exchange. And so what you can do is just decrease your sweep gas and decrease your your FiO two of your sweep gas, and and uh, you can do that over the course of you know hours or days you know, ultimately down to zero. And and so your blood flow rate is going to be exactly the same. You're still flowing uh, blood fast through the ECMO circuit. But at, once you turn off the sweep gas, the, the patient is essentially getting no support from the ECMO circuit. Uh, and as you do that, as you decrease the sweep gas, you can monitor ABGs, monitor the patient's oxygen saturation, and look at the patient to see their worker breathing and everything. And And you can increase the ventilator support as you do this. Now, if you get to a point where the patient's on no ECMO support, they're uh, not having any sweep gas going through their ECMO uh, circuit, but and, or and they're on non-injurious ventilator settings, then that's a good sign that it's time to consider decannulation. Sure. And I want to note that you mentioned we're going to keep the pump running, right? So the blood's going to be flowing around and around and around in the circuit. But if you turn the sweep gas off, nothing's happening, right? It's not, uh, it's not working to exchange oxygen and remove CO2. Uh, but it is helping to avoid that circuit from clotting. So you don't want to turn that, that flow down too low that the circuit clots. Uh, that is different than VA ECMO. VA ECMO, you do not turn the sweep all the way off. Um, and as Nick mentioned, with the sweep gas off, the patient is receiving no ECMO support at all. So in general, um, the uh, sweep should be off and everything okay on these patients for at least 24 hours or so uh, before decannulating. You should have everything off. That's right. And that's an important point. You know, VA ECMO is a little bit different, but with VV ECMO, you can trial them off for a long period of time and you can really see how they're going to do without ECMO. And it's really, uh, it it makes you feel a lot better about taking the cannulas out. So, so let's say you decide you're going to decannulate. So to do that, 
pretty straightforward. You, you turn off any anticoagulation that you have. You prep the sites in. You place a purse string suture around the, the insertion site if you don't have one already. Um, and then uh, um, uh, you kind of proceed with the next step. So, so what do you do next, right. Patrick? Sure. So you're going to clamp both the drainage and the return cannulas, and you're going to reduce the uh, pump speed to zero at that point. And, and once you have, uh, once the pump speed is zero, once there's no more negative pressure coming from the pump, you pull the cannula, tie down your purse string, and just hold pressure. Right. And this is very much like insertion, definitely a two-person job. Uh, you also want to be careful not to entrain air in the venous system, especially with the multi-stage cannulas where there's numerous holes at the end. And to that end, it is a good idea to hold breaths on the ventilator and position the patient in Trendelenburg or reverse T position, depending on whether it's an IJ or femoral insertion site. All right, Nick, that wraps up our final uh, VV uh, ECMO episode. Let's finish off with a quick review. All right, that, that is just great. So the first thing, so when you're on VV ECMO, the degree of lung rest is controversial. There's no clear evidence showing that ultra-low ventilator settings are favorable. Second. In general, when we talk about lung protective strategies, that includes a plateau pressure less than 25 to 30, a tidal volume less than 6 cc's per kilogram, and an FiO2 less than 40%. And although there is no exact definition, the uh, ultra-protective strategies are often synonymous with what is described in the ELSO guidelines. So that's an inspiratory pressure of 10, a PEEP of 10, respiratory rate of 5, and an FiO2 less than 40%. Third, uh, ECMO is uh, can, contributes to a hypercoagulable state. So uh, the most common anticoagulant used is heparin, which can be monitored using ACTs, PTTs, or anti-10A levels. However, there's no high-quality evidence to tell which assay is best. The typical therapeutic ranges that we talk about are 180 to 220 seconds for the ACT, 50 to 70 seconds for the PTT, and 0.4 to 0.8 units per milliliter for the anti-10A levels. Sure. Number four, other options for anticoagulation include direct thrombin inhibitors like bivalrudin or argatroban. Number five, to monitor for hemolysis, we want to check the plasma hemoglobin and lactase dehydrogenous levels daily. Clinically relevant levels of hemolysis can be diagnosed when plasma hemoglobin is greater than 50 milligrams per deciliter and or LDH greater than 2,000 units per liter. And six, ensuring a patient is appropriate for decannulation is a multi-step process that starts when a patient's lungs show signs of recovery, including improved oxygenation, decreased CO2, better lung compliance, and decreased lung opacification. And it ends when a patient has been stable for greater than 20, 24 hours with the sweep gas off. All right, Patrick, this was, this was truly fantastic. Thank you all so much for joining us. Thank you to the Behind the Knife team for allowing us to contribute. We hope you enjoyed this series. Feel free to reach out to us on Twitter uh, using the handle at Georgeoff and at Nick Tiemann. And until next time, dominate the day.